0: And we have next, the booking reads, Midnight's Children. Nathan Everson, your humble and obedient host joining you for another week. We got through those plays, and now we are into I hope a couple months of positive energy. I think I think a lot of positive energy because people thought we were a little hard on Narnia, even though, you know, there's different points of view on that one. And then maybe, the, maybe
1: that we weren't hard enough.
0: Then we had those uh horror stories and you guys lacked like the the finely tuned artistic sensibilities to appreciate the genius of of H. P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, yep. and all that kind Lisa. of stuff. Yeah. yeah, basically, you guys just didn't get it. Couldn't, couldn't couldn't understand. Blindly stood in front of the Mona Lisa and asked where you were. Now we are bringing the positive energy.
2: Well, Mona Lisa's smaller than you think, so
1: that is my know. understanding, and behind a lot of glass. I've not yeah. been, but that's I my saw the only Da Vinci painting. That is not on European soil in the National Museum of Art. Oh, cool. I think yeah. I've seen that too. Is that in the D.C.? Yeah, it's the one that's on that little pedestal and it has glass around it. Mm-hmm. And Jack got really close to the pedestal and the security guard said to say, boy, take a step back. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And good for the security guard. I bet he looks
0: forward every day to being able to do that. That's probably, probably like the highlight of his day.
1: What
2: would be the highlight of your day if you were a security guard who had to stand, watch up over a Da Vinci painting?
0: I think it would be saying, boy, take a step back. Yeah, and then shooting the kid, and then sh- yeah, and then pulling out my my, my taser. Rifle. Yeah. <laughs> I have to get you, um, run, boy. Run. I'm gonna give I'll you give you. The, you a, five. Yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> the boy's done what he asked, but he's still <laughs> coming for him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he took a step too close to that da Vinci painting. All right, so anyway, like the thrill of the hunt. Yeah, nothing like the thrill of the hunt. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nothing like cunning. The greatest apex predator of all time. (laughs) The most man.
0: (sighs) I'm an artist too. (laughs) Artist with a knife. (laughs) Okay. Hey, that was a dark twist. No, he's just uh chasing him with a knife. Yeah. He's making knife art.
2: And he's gonna Uh, he wants to give him a knife. Oh, he's gonna give him the knife. Yeah, he's giving him a knife. He
0: gives every boy that steps too close to the Da Vinci a a free knife. Yeah, there you go. It's a knife okay, salesman. Well,
2: that's, that's a much nicer sentiment. Yeah, he works on the side as a it's knife much salesman. It's a knifer sentiment. <laughs> Jake, oh, Jake, you have entered into just, the spirit of things. Jumped on the pun In wagon. fact, the podcast is like. canceled. <laughs> that's all Our work I here is done. <laughs> <laughs> you entered... get, Jake, get Jake to voluntarily make a pun. <laughs> yeah, I think we're done.
0: Oh, boy. All right. I can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Brennan. good night. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I don't know. Maybe we won't like Midnight's Children. I think we're going to like it, though. I don't know. I'm I'm hoping for some positive energy, though, because I like positive energy. I'll tell you what. Spoiler alert. I think some positive energy in January is coming with War and Peace because... I'm feeling that positive oh, man. energy. There's a gust of fresh air. Man.
2: I am only about three or 400 pages in so far. What's the, what is that? Like a quarter to a third of the way through? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was saying earlier today that if we turn this podcast into... The Tolstoy podcast or the Tolstoy and Austin podcast, I would not be sad.
0: And I told Jake that I had just been fan or not the fantasizing the, the Tolstoy, Tolstoy, this Tol- sounds very
2: Russian. Yeah, Tolstoy, if you say it with a, an Italian accent, it <laughs> <becomes> <laughs> <mean>. Russian, <right>? <laughs> it's a Russian. Get your spice, see Tolstoy, I mean, it's me. The ball. A Tolstoy, it's me, a
0: Tolstoy, um, <laughs> <laughs> versus select your player um <laughs> Tolstoy versus austin <laughs> let's <they> go <laughs> <Yahoo>! <laughs> our listeners are too young for this <laughs> we
2: just
0: made a small 64. demographic of our listeners very happy there's this app that i use to memorize bible verses and it's called verses and anytime i pull up that app my brain automatically goes Verses. so (laughs) that's one of those dumb things that's programmed into my brain (laughs) From the one video game that you played (laughs) from the one video game that i played you never played i didn't play a lot of video games i played some mario kart some smash brothers i mean i played like your 16-bit side scroller kind of things i love platform games uh midnight's children maybe i don't know so tolstoy definitely positive energy oh the thing i was gonna say is I i said to jake as i was reading tolstoy i was like one day this book's gonna be done and then what am I going to do? I yeah. it, I might just have to go to back to the beginning and read a couple of pages.
1: Like, yeah. just what's the point of going through life without having a well, diary? Tolstoy. You. Have you guys made it to where he starts to philosophize and get weird with history? Oh, no, no. He does get, He does go a little
2: bit off the deep. End. He has a Russian politics chapter. And... No,
1: he, it just starts interspersing these weird history chapters, and that's. But it's, it's such so a large. Book. We
2: needed some reason to not. Or something to not like about this book.
1: Whatever, I'm just gonna like skim those things. That's all I I I ever did. I don't care. I would just skim those parts. To me, those aren't even really, it's such a huge book. Mm -hmm. that There are sections of the book that don't even feel like the book to me. (laughs) Right.
2: Can we expurgate that in Anna Karenina someday and just get rid of like the dumb, boring Russian politics in Karenina and dumb philosophizing in War and Peace? And while we're at it, get rid of the whole last chapter of Huck Finn and then have the three, three of the greatest
1: masterpieces the world's ever known.
2: Yeah.
0: Beef up the ending to Persuasion a little bit. I think we can, we can yeah. do some
1: good work. And uh, <laughs> I had a professor at my undergraduate time institution. Editors. Editors, the time editors. The time editor, the oh, time editors. Time editors. Time editors.
0: Oh, I love time editors. Booketing spinoff. The Booketing yeah. presents time editors. <laughs> great. Yeah. This is great. This is our yeah. TV show.
2: <laughs>
0: can they do it? <laughs> in time <laughs> yes they can they have a time
2: machine we have a time I machine we go back and we <laughs> yeah. fix everything it's one of the easiest things for them to do <laughs> yeah. get things done in time <laughs> did we get that done in time nope oh well you know we'll just go back and go do back again. and Shakespeare
0: <laughs> yeah. you need to make sure we know what happened to the fool <laughs> <laughs> wait <laughs> we, can, we can do that I, I like time editors I'm excited about this yeah you I know was... what I think the new listeners are still here I wouldn't I think, why wouldn't they, be? Think,
1: why wouldn't they This be? conversation's been so entertaining. I had a thought I was starting. Yeah, go ahead. All I, all I was saying is I had a professor. <laughs> dangerous. Yeah.
2: Very dangerous.
1: <laughs> who took, uh, in her book club, she took Anna Karenina and they expurgated all of the Levin and Kitty's parts. Oh. And all they read was the Anna and Vronsky. Boo. Boo. That's what I told her. I told her she was awful. Boo. <laughs> Boo. It was a sad thought. It was a sad thought. It was a sad thought. She was a strange professor. She was pale. Mm-hmm. And she had two um, great hounds that she would go everywhere on campus with. Well,
2: I remember I... you telling that story before, and I am just as sad about it now as I was then. Yeah,
0: I say boo. I say boo. Hey, that's another character from Smash Brothers, the little ghost guy. Speaking of ghost guys, that's Ghost Brandon, the scholar hey. who's a baller of reading. As Pastor Jacob Menzel, he's the pastor who's a master of reading again yeah i'm nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host we're welcoming you to another episode of the bookending we're talking about midnight's children by Me. one salman Rushdie. midnight's children yeah what's that sound oh no it's the sound of the guns going off
2: oh. folks couple bang, bang
0: guns going off brandon chastine's firing him he just jake caught one in the chest it's happened before it'll probably happen again and brandon is yeah firing those guns because he's from Texas and uh-huh. that makes him the contextual and that's just
2: what Texans do they, they just fire guns fire right guns off like, he's yeah. throwing
0: his 10 gallon hat in the air
2: Damn. screaming yeehaw
0: screaming yeehaw Raring back on the, the steed that he's riding very quiet yeehaw <laughs> it is a very, very co- quiet steed yep yeah you can't <laughs> not much of a, of a yeehaw is it Jake <laughs> not, nope pretty
1: <laughs> one might almost say
0: non-existent
1: <laughs> are we supposed to get started
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: With a hail, yee Take it away. <laughs> so getting in, this, getting, in getting in preparing for this. Getting and preparing for this. And getting and preparing for this. Getting and preparing? Getting and preparing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Getting uh-huh. and preparing. Okay. And getting and preparing for this, <laughs> as we've said, I had a lot of fun. So I approached this very similarly to how I approached getting ready for Ishiguro's context. Because what's neat about having an author like Salman Rushdie is he is a contemporary. He's still alive. And there are lots of interviews and you can go and you can watch um, these interviews on YouTube or wherever you get your fine interview sources. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can actually see him explain his works to you. you, can see him explain his life to you and get a feel for who he is. And it's fun. There's one that I really recommend people go maybe we can put this on something. Yeah. Throw it in Slack and I'll, we'll I'll throw it in Slack. Yeah. And it's uh it's by the Louisiana Collective or something like that. But it was just, it's just there's this interview about him ex- t- talking about his childhood and who he was and the situation surrounding the fatwa, but also surrounding the creation and writing of this book. And so it's really, it's it's interesting. And uh, he's a very fascinating character. He's not necessarily a good character. The, after the 1980s, when he became famous, and then once the fatwa kind of started to die down in the 2000s, his, he, would, he divorced his first wife, who he had his first son with. And then he famously married that woman who was on Top Chef. So he became a kind of celebrity with, and he's, he's an interesting character, but we'll start with his biography. He was born in India. He was born in 1947 in Bombay. And at that time it was then British in India into a Kashmiri Muslim family. And this is all important because as you know, in this book, the cultural identity of people in India at the time, their relation to Britain. Their relation to either their Hindu or their Muslim origins, all these all, this would be heavily define your cultural status, your caste status, all these aspects of who you are, who you the sort of privileges that you had, the sort of access to jobs and to education that you would have and so the Kashmiri Muslims they were part of the upper caste system, even though within the Hindus eventually after the independence and you would have the struggles have you guys seen Slum Dog Millionaire?
0: I've never seen Slumdog Millionaire.
1: You guys have not seen Slumdog Millionaire. Nope. But he actually, he was a Kashmiri Muslim, and he was born in 1947, so he had a lot of the experiences that you see in Midnight's Children. These are direct autobiographical events from his own life. His father was a Cambridge-educated lawyer turned businessman, and he would be educated at a... Boarding school, that's what that's the word I'm looking for. In Bombay, but then eventually he would also go to rugby school in Warwickshire, and then eventually go to King's College, Cambridge, where he would study history. And so he had this wealth wealthy, well off educational background. But one thing that I found from one of his interviews was his parents told him, though he doesn't remember this, was that he always wanted to be a writer since he was a very young boy. There are two things that were interesting about his childhood as far as his storytelling goes. He His father would tell him the Arabian Nights and Eastern fables, and he would never read directly from the book. He would just tell his own versions of the story. And so he said, even before I, this is a direct quote from him, even before I knew there was a book that these stories came from, they had great stories to tell, but to come from that background with a fantastic story, fantastic tales as your literary inheritance was very important to him. So to have these great tales, but especially the Arabian Nights, the Eastern fables, these sorts of mythologies and legends really helped shape his imagination, which will be important when we fit him into literary history here in just a minute. Um, He also said that growing up in India at the time, it was 1947, they had no television. And so books and stories were very important to him. He responded strongly to entering into someone else's imagination. And he says this, I found this quote interesting, when a child says he wants to be a writer when he grows up, maybe what he really means is that he loves reading books. And what he wants to do is do that very thing when other people, that he loves other people doing. So in other words, he wants to write books because he loves to read and loves to hear stories. He wants to do that. He wants to be a storyteller. And so even from childhood, he always wanted to be a storyteller. And you can tell in this book, I mean, this is one of the flavors of this book is he is just a storyteller. He likes to weave a story for you Mm -hmm. and it's complicated and he has this sort of magic to the way he tells a story that's unrivaled. I think it's important for listeners who might be wondering, why are we doing Midnight's Children? So before we get further into his biography, this book was incredibly influential. It was published in 1981. It made his career. It won the Booker Prize at the time in 1981. And the Booker Prize is like, it's a, it's a big prize in Britain. It's been around since the late 1960s. And then every so often they'll do like a 25th anniversary or a 40th anniversary best of the Booker uh, contest. And at the 25th anniversary and the 40th anniversary, Midnight's Children won. So of all the Booker Prize winners, his book is seen as the best that has ever received the Booker Prize. So this is like of the modern literature, postmodern literature, however you want to describe this book, this is seen as one of the most important books of the 20th century. And I think that it's been around for 33 years now, even though the Satanic Verses is studied more often because of the fatwa against it. Most people see Midnight's Children as his masterpiece. This is a book that's going to last and stay with us for a long time. I say that because maybe maybe certain categories of our listeners maybe had never, never, never even thought of reading Salman Rushdie before. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he's just a modern writer. Why would I read him? He's not one of the old guys. Mm-hmm. But he is important, and he will be important. I have no doubt that this is going to be a canonical book. It does the things that the great books we've read do. It it has similarities to Dickens and to Tolstoy and to things like that. So, and I'm sure we'll get we'll talk all about that. Anyways, some of the literary things that he read when he was young, he read The Arabian Nights, as I said, but he also was heavily influenced by uh, Hans Christian Andersen, hmm. particularly The Snow Queen and The Shadow, which are apparently two of his darker stories that have the fairy tale elements to it, but a darker overtone. Mm-hmm. And especially with The Shadow, you can see at the end of this book where you have Indira Gandhi. As the woman with part black hair, part green hair, mm-hmm. that sort of magical realism that gets wrapped into it. You can see that sort of fairy tale quality uh, heavily influencing his imagination there. He liked Lewis Carroll as well. And apparently, he also loved stories about English boarding schools. He thinks that had Harry Potter been written at a time, he would have probably loved it. <laughs> and he was really disappointed, as C.S. Lewis was, when he actually had to go to a boarding school and find out that they were not everything he had hoped they would be. <laughs> And he has very little, and it's interesting, you can find very little about his childhood years, other than he had a fairly good relationship with his parents. He went to boarding school. He was wealthy. He was, If you watch Slumdog Millionaire, he was not one of the lower caste systems, mm-hmm. or low, one of the lower caste uh, families. He would have been very similar, probably to Salim, in mm-hmm. his situation. One thing that he really stresses is that he learned at that time that when he would read books, especially books from other parts of the world, it would open up to him worlds that are not his own. And by reading about other cultures, he can learn something about them. If you guys ever read Windows to the World or something by Leland Riken? in which he gets from C.S. Lewis, where literature is a window to the world, and you climb through that window into another world. And this is, so at the end of Lewis's, uh, the discarded image, he has a part where he says that if you really want to understand Virgil, you got to understand Virgil's world. You can't just read Virgil. You actually want to need to understand what it was like to be a Roman, what it was like to be Virgil. That's one of the values that uh, Salman Rusty sees in literature is that it opens up those worlds to us. And that's an important claim because in a minute we'll talk about where he fits in with like post-colonialism and sort of postmodern literature. And it's a very – that is a very modern liberal way of looking at literature and the power, especially the politics of literature. And whether, Sal, whether Salman Rushdie started as a political writer, he didn't. Whether he he is now, he has to be a political writer because of what happened to him. And we'll get there. It's a famous story. Everybody knows what happened to him. But anyways, cliffhangers are always fun, right? Yes. Yeah, good. All right after he graduated from cambridge he worked for a while in advertising Hmm. and this is a really fascinating part of his life um he says that he did that because that's how he needed to earn a living but also he wanted to be he wanted to do something where he could write and so similar to ishiguro he got kind of a late start and they both were writing in the 80s so he wrote uh, a children 81 and then later that decade the Remains of the Day would come out. And so they're very contem- contemporaneous to one another. So he left university and he lived in London for a while. And he, there are some famous, I think it's in maybe the opening introduction to that book there, he actually says some of the stuff. That he, like he has some famous slogans that he came up with. This is just now coming to my mind. I'd seen this before. There was some fun. Yeah, 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 here it is. Um, And it was at my desk at Ogilvy that I remember becoming worried that I didn't know what my new novel was to be called. I took several hours off from the important work of coming up with campaigns for fresh cream cakes, naughty but nice, Aero chocolate bars, irresistible bubble, <laughs> and the Daily Mirror newspaper. Look into the mirror tomorrow; you'll like what you see. So he came up with those are slogans that he actually came up for these things, and so that was his job.
2: Sloganeering.
1: Sloganeering. Yeah, oh, he was a ma- he was a madman, mm-hmm. and so he graduated from Cambridge in '68. Started advertising. It wouldn't be until twelve and a half years later that he would actually have success as a writer with Midnight's Children. He would publish one book that was poorly received before that called Grimus, of which I have never read. But it's still published to this day, and he says that it's kind of getting a second life, which it seems to be because of his influence. But it was, it was not well received at first. And so he was kind of depressed. He didn't really know if he was going to make it as a writer. One other thing that he said that was important for him with advertising is that he got to work with a lot of men who would become important filmmakers in Britain. Ridley Scott, guys like that, which I didn't realize until that point that Ridley Scott was a British filmmaker. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what, what fascinated him about the advertising world was cinema because he always loved cinema. He always loved movies and he That's especially like from the book. Yeah. And he loved the craft of making a commercial, like the actual craft and art of cinema. And so this was something that he loved to be a part of and to see these filmmakers and to know these future auteurs. And this was something that it was extraordinarily creative that he kind of fed his imagination, at least. It didn't kill his imagination at that time. And so um, I found that interesting. Mm-hmm. And because you can see the cinematic elements in this book, this is a very image-driven book. And there are a lot of cinematic flourishes. There are, especially with some of the stories, there's a cinema involved at one point even, right? There's a filmmaker Yeah, yeah, his cousin or uncle or something like that. And he also says at the time, this is the 60s, 70s things, the cinema itself, it was just the golden era of cinema. And also music was very important at this time. And so it was just a creative time. He felt like he was living in a particular moment where it was just conducive to creativity. He says that why he doesn't think that he went into music because he had the opportunity to write lyrics, he had the opportunity to be a filmmaker. He says that... It, by nature, he's a, very, he's a man who loves his solitude. And he thinks that men that like solitude are more likely to become a novelist or a fiction writer because cinema by its nature is collaborative. That's what, he's, that's what he claimed. It seemed to make sense. Uh, he, wanted to sit, he wanted to sit in a room by himself and have a finished work. He was also good at writing. He knew he, that he had a good command of the English language. And so he started to make himself some work habits, which I found really fascinating. He treats writing like a job. He works from nine to five, no matter whether he feels like it or not. He says the myth of genius, the myth of inspiration is just a myth that you sit down. If you have a talent for writing, if you really want to be a writer, you sit down and you write from nine to five. You just make it a job.
2: Common theme among some of the greatest writers, even just most successful writers who you wouldn't consider to be great, mm-hmm. but we've well, it's just gir- discovered over and over again on this show.
0: Yeah, we've talked about it many times and it's one of the most profound truths, I think, that uh, anyone interested in the arts can come to understand is that. Yeah, that we,
2: saw it with ish- yeah we saw it with Ishiguro. Mm-hmm. What is uh, the great Stephen King version of that? It, it's the amateurs sit around and wait for inspiration and. Writers write. Writers write or writers get to work, mm-hmm. roll up your sleeves and get to work. Something like that. Yep. yep, it's true.
1: Yeah. I think it's so true. And so that's what he did. And he wrote Midnight's Children and we'll get to that in just a minute. Also, another thing that was really interesting is he, so with Ishiguro, Ishiguro will always tried to read just enough material about what he's writing about that, he can, that it sparks his imagination, but he doesn't want to read so much that it then feels like he's writing a history. Mm-hmm. And Rushdie said something very similar to that. He says he reads around whatever he's writing. He doesn't want to really immerse himself too much, but he does want to get into the feel of whatever he's thinking about at the time. Uh, comparing these guys because, like I said, they're contemporary. They're contemporaries, and we'll come back to that in a minute too. Because we're going to try to place him historically, but there is something really interesting about writers at this time. Where it's, I guess, maybe it's because of global culture or globalization. We can just talk about it now. Trying to fit someone like Rushdie or Ishiguro into like a movement. So like we talk about the Romantics or the Victorians or the Modernists after the sort of global expansion after 1960 and 1950 it really becomes hard to even categorize a novelist like Salman Rushdie he doesn't belong to a movement he becomes like a, he to an extent he becomes a celebrity but also he's just a writer he's a novelist it's not like he sees himself as belonging to a group or a school of thought or an artistic movement and Ishiguro was kind of the same way i mean you can talk about him as being a postmodern and we did right say so he had some postmodern elements to him and so does Rustein we'll talk about that here in a minute. But really they're not a part of a movement. They're just novelists telling a story that happens to be influenced by all sorts of modern phenomena. Anyways, that's a, that's something to keep in mind as we go about talking about him some more. You
0: think that's just history not providing us enough perspective to actually it may be. create a category or
1: yeah, because there are definitely categories we can put him into, mm-hmm. and we will here in just a minute try to put him into some of these. But these are more just lenses that it's useful to look at him through. Mm-hmm. With writers like Ishiguro and Rushdie, the story seems to always trump movement. It's really strange. Like Ishiguro, it's really hard to put him into a box mm. because we're going to, Next, have we announced our book list yet? We haven't yet. We may or may not be doing another Ishiguro next year. You never know. I don't know. But that Ishiguro is going to be very different than the one we read this year. If we like, do it? Yeah, Ishiguro. If we do it, that's right. If we should do Ishiguro. No, no, Ishiguro really is the same book. And it's kind of the same with uh, Salman Rushdie too. It's all over the place. So it's, it's fascinating. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's their postmodernism coming through, but they're not really postmodern in the sense that like Samuel Beckett's a postmodern writer. No doubt that Samuel Beckett's a postmodern. Anyways. I find this really fascinating. I'm trying to figure it out. And so, all right. So now back to 1981, because that's when Midnight's Children was published. And he had been right. It took him five years to write this book. And so once he had the draft finished, he felt like it was an important book, but he really didn't know until finally a publisher took it. And then it just exploded. It became huge, immensely successful, sold a lot of copies and also won the Booker Prize. And so it changed his life. It was the book that changed his life. He said that had it not been well received, he knows just from his own personality that he might not have become a writer. It would have probably just crushed him after Grimace was rejected. If Midnight's Children had not been successful, he probably would have just given up and gone into the advertising world. So, but the good reception was what gave him the confidence to go on. He was not expecting it to become the phenomenon that, that it became. So in 1981, he writes Midnight's Children. It comes out and then few years later, his life changes again mm. because he writes another book called Satanic Verses. Basically, all the Satanic Verses is, is it's. Uh, he says in these first two books, he was kind of trying to explore his own past and his own heritage and figure out who he was as a writer. And you can see that a bit with Midnight's Children. It's a weird book in many places, and it's kind of uneven in places. It reads like a young person's book or a young man's book. And he was only 33 when it got published. So, Satanic Verses. And so, he was trying to figure out who he was. Midnight's Children is his dealing with his history and the history of his country. Satanic Verses is about his Pakistani side. It's about immigration, basically, is what the Satanic Verses. That's all it was about. And he says that, and I think he's probably partly right, that the Satanic Verses is deliberately misdescribed, he thinks, that the Muslim world took it and intentionally blew it out of proportion. Mm -hmm. But all that to say... That in the satanic verses, there are parts that are seen as being blasphemous to the Islamic faith. And so, because of that...
2: You mean a book called The Satanic Verses is... I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. Blasphemous part. No, I I wasn't. I was being completely sincere. I was shocked. Jake is shocked. The the satanic verses. There's an exclamation point hovering over Jake's head right now. (laughs) It's like, what? Now there's a question mark. I'm so confused. Well, what's funny
1: is, had this been about the Bible... He would still be okay. Yeah. He could walk down London streets with pride. (laughs) But this was about the Quran. (laughs) And so the Ayatollah declared a fatwa on him, which meant that (laughs) any Allah-fearing Muslim had the freedom to kill him (laughs) at will. And was encouraged to do so. And was encouraged Mm -hmm. to do so. And it was a huge deal in the early 90s. It changed his life. He had to go into hiding for a while. He had a son who was nine years old at the time the troubles began for him. And so trying to keep a relationship with this son was very difficult. And in fact, part of him trying so it's, it's interesting watching him try to deal with his fatherhood and his failures in some of these interviews. And he says he knows that he, one of the ways that he approached it was he just treated his son like he was already a grown man. And he says, he realizes he probably shouldn't have done that. He put way too, way too much weight on him. And then too late, he tried to change that a bit by instead remembering what made him love his father so much like I said earlier and I mentioned that on purpose was it was the storytelling that his father had these telling him these stories that's what he loved about his dad and so during this period he began to tell stories to his son and then he began to write a book that was like a fairy tale for his son and eventually that became Harun in the Sea of Stories the, his next book which is a really fantastic book I just finished that recently and in some ways I think it's as good if not a little bit better than Midnight's Children and then the rest is You know, he becomes a celebrity. He still has to be in hiding some, but he becomes famous for talking about... He's like the modern John Milton with the Areopagitica. That's kind of what he... That's his... It's his uh, soapbox, his anti-censorship. Literature should be free to say the hard things to the world. Literature should be free to be brave, and you need to be brave in the face of these threats that try to silence you, because literature has important work to do. And so... What's fascinating about his career afterwards, and he really hasn't written too many novels that are really worth reading, Shame is is pretty good. But then some of his later stuff is just rehashing his old ideas. But it's kind of that early work of his that's important. And now what he'll be remembered for with his other stuff is this identity he has as a figure who stands for anti-censorship laws, basically. So he's become a politicized figure, even though he didn't start as a politicized figure. Hmm. He started as just a guy who wanted to be a storyteller. He wanted to write a great novel and to be remembered. One of his favorite quotes is by his Martin am- Amis, which is our aunt Amis, one of his friends. Mm-hmm. He said that the goal of every writer is to be able to walk into a bookstore sh- and say, here I am from here to here on this shelf. And the longer the section you have on the shelf, the more successful your career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of what he wants is to have a whole shelf of books that last and are remembered. Interesting. Yeah, so there's some narcissism with him. There's there's some uh, of the fact that he just became a celebrity and what that does to your life. Many ruined marriages. And that's kind of who he has become now. Hmm. We talked about his biography. So now I'll start placing him in literary history. One of the things that's interesting is this book is so full of the history of India, and yet he really doesn't talk much about his time in India. And yet the fact that he was a Kashmiri Muslim. He's not practicing anymore, but he was raised Kashmiri Muslim. The fact that he has this Indian heritage to him, it's very, it's, that is all that this book is about, mm-hmm. right? And the way that this book relates to this particular character and how he is tied, literally, to the history of his country. Like everything that happens to him is in some way mirroring the end of the British rule in India and the rise of power of the new Indian Republic. And so he's born, he's born at midnight on the day of India's independence, right? And then he's closely tied to the coming of Indira Gandhi, and she was the prime minister who would then lead into what was called the the emergency, and that is when the midnight's children are all gathered and put into that prison and the emer- and that's symbolically re- related to what happened during the state of emergency with Indira Gandhi and the oppression and so, um, this book is very political in that sense, but then also it's just a story, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I'm sure we'll get to that in, in a, in a little bit. Uh, one quote from him, as we move into this part, he says that facts are slippery. The truth isn't. So he's talking here about why he thinks fiction is important. Someone, this was from the Harvard business review, and they asked him, why should a businessman read fiction? And he said, the facts are slippery. The truth is imperfect. Fiction recognizes that. There's also another kind of truth, the truth of how we human beings relate to one another, to place, to ideas, and to belief systems, and you only find that in a novel. And so those are the two defenses he would have as to why should Steve Jobs read fiction. Right. Right. Because it shows them that the way that they perceive the world might not be the right way of perceiving the world. It might just, it might be just perception and a lie. Or, and also, that they need to know Other ways of relating to people, to places, to ideas, and belief systems outside their own. That's what fiction can do for us. That's the closest that I found to him actually making a statement as to his own beliefs about his fiction. And so, you guys have anything you want to add right now? I 65% agree with that. Yeah? Well then, let's put him into literary history. All right. I don't think, I was trying to figure out if it would be all that useful to go through a history of India. (laughs) I don't think it would. <laughs> Wikipedia I you were say modernism. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, let's go through modernism. So no, not we're gonna... not even gonna talk about modernism today. What? I know. We're
0: not gonna talk about World War One and we're not. the horrors and
1: Nathan, we're not.
0: The uh what do you call those people? The lost generation. The lost generation. We're not talking about them. Hemingway. We're Brandon, not. you do realize this is an episode You're of the, the bookening,
1: right? Yes, I understand that Nathan. One of your
0: contexts.
1: Yeah, we're not talking about them today. We're gonna stay far away from them. Okay, how though? far away? Couple years, a few decades. Gertrude Stein, we're, we're gonna talk about her, right? No, she's not even gonna come up. <laughs> Hemingway, no, wow. I've been to his house in Chicago. Uh uh-huh. huh,
2: gotcha. He just came up. Yep, he just came up. You brought him up. Oh. We dangled some catnip, <laughs> and Brandon, <laughs> uh,
1: I bet He bit, pawed at it. it. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to figure
0: out. Brandon took a sniff. What do yeah. you do with catnip? I don't know.
1: Over your pawing at my microphone. Mm hmm.
0: Purring. We rubbed some peanut butter on Brandon's microphone, so he, <laughs> he's been trying to eat it. It's pretty funny. Um,
1: okay. Okay. All right. What are we doing? So we got through the bio, Nathan. Not I'm, a history. I'm, we're not doing a history of India. I'm, India. We're not doing. it I mean, I just gave everything you need to know. They used to be. They used to be a British colony, mm-hmm. and then they won their independence. They were no longer a British colony, mm. and that's where this book begins. Is mm-hmm. at the independence of the Indian Republic. There were two primary people groups. The Muslims and the Hindus, they didn't get along. To try and resolve some of this tension, they split off Pakistan. But there was this small fragment of land, the Kashmir Valley, that they would fight over with India for a long time. And that's, mm, you can see that in the book, right? When he has to go to Pakistan and then he becomes that Pakistani soldier for a while, where he completely loses all memory. Yeah.
2: And the monkey, the brass monkey became... To Jameela Singer.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you get that weird scene in the jungle where all his memories come back to him. Ugh. Man, it's such a weird book. <laughs> it's a very strange book. <laughs> <laughs> that all leads you up to Indira Gandhi becoming president. And then, like I said, and you can go and you can read about all this. I mean, Wikipedia has plenty and lots of stuff. The emergency was yeah, but the emergency, horrific. The emergency was pretty horrific. And that's what he saw as being kind of like the totalitarian end of the freedom of the Indian Republic. All the stuff about like the Midnight's children all are
0: sterilized and there were forced sterilizations. There really were forced sterilizations. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was awful. Pretty grotesque.
1: It was really horrible. There were assassinations, attempts and stuff and that some think that like she made the assassination attempt so that she could then have a reason to instate the emergency. There was a lot of shady stuff going on.
0: Mm -hmm. We should just say for people who don't know, Indira Gandhi, not related to...
1: Mahatma no, yes Mahatma she has nothing to do with Mahatma Gandhi at all. No relation. Um her father was one of the first prime ministers, maybe the first one of the first important leaders of India after the republic came into existence. And then she came to power. So the Gandhis, that particular branch of the Gandhis were always just political powers. They were like the Bush family. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: But um, <laughs> I remember when Jeb was sterilizing all those yeah. people. That was <laughs> awful. You guys
2: remember that? He <laughs> could have gone for the Clintons, but she yeah. was. Yeah,
1: they were the Clintons. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> and, but that's so. This book starts at that moment, then all the way up to the end when she has the state of emergency, and that's when the Midnight's children are all brought and sterilized, and that's when they lose their power, and his mucus is drained from his nose, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he loses his <laughs> poor te- guy. Yeah, he use, loses his telepathy.
0: <laughs> Actually, Brandon, if I may. Yeah. That happens a lot earlier in the book.
1: That's right. That part does. Mm-hmm. But they're all sterilized at that point. Yes. Thank you, Nathan. Yes. I know more about Midnight's Children
0: oh, than Brandon.
1: Oh, snap. You got me in an air. Are you going to give us one star now? <laughs> yeah, one star. <laughs> Rats, Brandon mis- remembered one fact, one star. Moron said
0: nose drained in wrong yeah. section of novel, one star.
1: And then his son, obviously, he's born at another important Turning point where he hopes maybe for a brighter future Mm. for India. And that's where the hope of the book comes in. As far as the so, if we think about the politics here, because obviously there's a political element to this. And especially with you have some, well, with his father potentially being a British man, right? You have some what we call here's a term that I hate. So you're going to have to help me say it post colonial theory. Some post colonial theory. Yeah. You guys don't seem to hate it as much as I do.
0: What were we supposed to do? Is they boo or No, yeah. I just <sighs> I don't want
1: it. postcolonial theory. It just brings back nightmares of grad school. That's all. Mm. I went to grad I first started going to graduate school when postcolonial theory was in its heyday. It was like the thing. And then towards the end of my graduate career, it was queer studies. That was the one that was coming into mm. preeminence. But postcolonial theory, man, it was all the range. And all it is is it's so the big proponents of col- postcolonial theory is the for example a guy named Homi K. Baba, and the ideas are that it's good to read white texts like books by white men in light of their colonial assumptions, and then also then to look at other books, for example, Midnight's Children, as how they are trying to create their own space and create a voice so that these people who haven't had voices can be heard.
0: A good silly example that we've done on the booking is Mansfield Park. Yeah. There's gallons of ink that's been spilled on the fact that Sir Thomas has slaves in India and viewing that whole novel, which has like a tiny little kind of throwaway part through this post-colonial lens.
1: Yeah. But like I said, the post-colonialism isn't necessarily a move. There are writers who try to write with a postcolonial edge like they're intentionally doing that. And so they're but they're like the avant-garde. And I guess that's kind of what's weird about this maybe it just is postmodernism, but you see these little fragments where you'll have people doing specific things and they're trying to do things as a group, like postcolonial art, but they're like the avant-garde. They're not usually the ones that are in the forefront. Like Salman Rushdie doesn't think of himself intentionally as a postcolonial writer. Can you read his book postcolonially? Yes, you can. There are definitely things that are going on there with a post-colonial lens. And so with that, you get the ideas of like, so you've, you've heard the term the other. That's like a big part of our parlance today. People say, oh, you're othering, or that's just, he's an other. But when you're talking about like a, a group that you're... Like the group on the island? Yes, like the group on the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I those, the that. others. Remember that? The others, Yeah. yeah you know. No, it's the political idea that it's a group that you other, right? So we're talking about them, the Nicole Kidman movie. Now, yeah. The others. You right? make them other than yourself, right. right? And you do that intentionally because you have to then have your own white supremacy validated. Mm-hmm. And so you other this people. And so you that's where that whole idea comes from. Maybe you guys haven't heard this. Us versus them. <laughs> yeah, us that's versus true. them. This This idea of othering another group, mm-hmm. the subaltern, all these terms that I think are kind of, maybe they're not as common as I think they are. <laughs> But a lot of the way that our politics today thinks about political correctness, thinks about the way that we relate to other to races and stuff like that, it comes from this movement. The multicultural movement is another, it's a part of that movement and that idea. I bring that up because it's just important to know that Salman Rushdie, since he is an Indian writer, often people try to push him into that conversation. But I don't usually, I don't see that it's a very useful conversation for this book because we can talk about it, I guess when we get into it, but really it doesn't seem like Salman Rushdie's having a hard time finding a voice to speak the Indian, his Indian story, right? His experience doesn't seem like he's being suppressed or trying to mm-hmm. wail against the white man. Right. It doesn't seem like there's much usefulness thinking through it that way. And I know that there's probably some post-colonial grad student out there somewhere screaming and pulling their hair out for all the stuff I'm leaving out. And you know what? I'm not Sorry. <laughs> The other useful lens, and people can go and they can listen to our Ishiguro episode for some other stuff on postmodernism, mm-hmm. but just briefly, postmodernism started after World War II is kind of the reference point most people use. I didn't say modernism, mm-hmm. postmodernism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it was a follow-up and a response to, drum roll, modernism. Oh, okay. Oh, oh I, th- I thought oh, you said you weren't bringing it up. Man. Yeah. I can't help liar. myself. Liar. Yep. Yeah, I'm a liar. And...
2: Lost generation.
1: Yes, lost Gertrude generation. Stein. Postmodernism. Yes, <laughs> Eliot. It's World War prim- One. It's, it's really yeah. It's oh, you guys, are trying to pull me back, but I'm not. I'm gonna push forward. Come on, Brandon. T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot. What? <laughs> T.S. Eliot. I'm coming. <laughs> Wait for me.
0: Midnight in Paris. You know you want to name drop Midnight in Paris.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: I love you. And I love learning
1: at about least, modernism. I'm at least, I'm glad you guys listen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I listened
1: twice. <laughs> I even went went and watched Midnight in Paris. Did you like it? Yeah. It's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyways, um, postmodernism, one of the main tenets of that is that they're, it, it, it's heavily tied, I think, in our popular imagination to was existentialism. Picasso. That was Say what? Weird. Say what? T- nothing. To Picasso? She,
2: she was dating Picasso.
1: She was dating Picasso. Who was dating Picasso?
2: The chick in the movie.
0: The chick. Was it Owen Wilson's girlfriend who
2: was dating Picasso? Or... Uh, no,
0: the woman he fell in love with, yeah. who who was not who was just a fictional character, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And Picasso was played by Adrian Brody. <laughs> the Master Thespian meets the master artist. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry,
0: Brandon. Postmodernism.
1: Postmodernism. He
0: comes <laughs> after modernism.
2: Yeah, Hemingway was in that movie. Yep.
0: He was. He was pretty good.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> man, you guys. Are not helping. Postmodernism in our popular imagination is heavily tied to existentialism. Mm -hmm. Existentialism, Ah. Nietzsche, yeah, was the belief that there is no real, true reality, and instead we create our realities through our Mm. own perceptions, through our own actions. So the ones that are mostly influenced will be the French existential school, which would be Sartre and Mm. Camus. Camus, and so there that when people think of postmodernism, when they think of question, truth questioning, it's always questioning the truth, always questioning reality.
2: You could probably write a really good dro- joke about Camus if you just cows and Camus. Mm-hmm. You should work on that, work that into a script.
0: What do you call a uh, bovine existentialist? Camus. Camus, Camus. <laughs>
1: Nailed today it. <laughs> was brought to you by nope, no <laughs> Brandon We care,
0: we we are nailed to our seats right now, and that's the only reason we're staying. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, because I had literally nailed both of you to your seats. You can't get out of here this time. Um, no, I'm interested. Jake's interested. We love this.
1: So the Fred, French existentialism, the French existentialist school, heavily influenced the way that we think about postmodernism today. And an, another element that got added were some of the French. Literary theorists at the time, kind of by like Roland Barthes and Michel Foucault, these guys who added this element of, since we can't know reality, since we can't know truth, we, the way we approach it best is through irony and through play, mm. through being playful, through being ironic. And so you can definitely see these elements in Midnight's Children, a lot of playfulness, a lot of irony, a lot of questioning truth. Like when the narrator himself begins to wonder, why I don't actually know if that's what actually happened. But doesn't matter if that's not what really happened. What matters is the truth that we're getting out of it now, right? And sometimes fictional truth. And so there's a really interesting passage in the book where this kind of comes out in flying colors. Mm. He waves his banners. And these are very postmodern elements to the story. Well, because Padma is always saying,
0: you changed the story, Salim. And he's like, shut up.
1: I can change the story. Yeah, it doesn't matter. What matters is the truth that I'm telling now, mm-hmm. or. Whatever it is, the reality, whatever I'm trying to convey at this moment. And that's a very postmodern sensibility, even though you have elements of that, like even with like Tristram Shandy, some elements, even like David Copperfield. Weirdly enough, The Scarlet Letter. Mm. I was reading that recently, and there's this weird moment where Hawthorne pauses the book and he's never talked as a third person omniscient narrator just directly to you, but he stops and says, Now, reader. These are just, this is basically hearsay. These are things that I heard from this person who heard from this person and whether or not it's the truth, who knows? And you're just like, what in the world just happened? (laughs) 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 That was okay. Anyways. (laughs) So all that to say is these, these have always been elements of storytelling, but becoming like the intentional way that we can actually access where literature can maybe hopefully access some sort of truth became predominant, especially in this postmodern moment. Does that make sense? Where the, this is what literature, serious literature, tried to do. And Midnight's Children fits right into that sort of storytelling. Through story, like he said, we can access some sort of truth. Through story, we can question the idea of truth with a capital T in general, and hopefully maybe come to smaller truths about ourselves and understanding of other humans and stuff like that, right? He's, and so this is very postmodern. And then this idea that through playfulness, through irony which is really just rebellion because what we don't want to do is respect convention for convention's sake we always want to be experimenting and toying with form and trying to reshape things and see through our reshaping and through our questioning through our weird narrative devices through our weird uh structure through all this breaking apart of convention try to come to maybe something new that can tell us something about reality that we didn't know before So an experimentation is kind of at the heart of it as well. You definitely see that here too. The other thing though that you really see here, which is the closest you're going to find to being able to categorize this book, if that's what somebody really wants to do is to take like the branding iron and brand that here's what this book is. Mm. It's this little subset of postmodernism that was also a branch off of surrealism that kind of preceded postmodernism because surrealism and Dadaism Those were actually modernist movements, but it's this little creature called magical realism. Magical realism. Yeah.
2: This is what I've been waiting for. Me too.
1: Yeah. It's magical realism. It, it adapts itself very easily to postmodernism, but really it has its roots in fable. It has its roots in fairy tale, and it has its heaviest roots in South America, Mm. especially with, so the origins were, um, they come from Latin America and so you had some Cuban writers who were pretty important in the 20s with surrealism, but it wouldn't be until, do you guys know the first really important magic realist author that mm-hmm. kind of made it a thing? Uh, what's this
0: face? 100 Years of Solitude,
1: right? No, it was actually yeah. before, a little bit before him, would be Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, Borges. I was in wondering Borges. if Borges was going to enter into this.
2: Historia Universal. I want Daylight. you guys to know that I was thinking about Borges from the moment you said South America, and I just didn't have the courage to say it because I'm giving, not in. Oh, don't, don't give him a fist bump. I, He's fist bumping my cowardice.
1: I believe him. Don't fist bump his cowardice. You don't believe
0: him? Well, I don't know. I just feel like I deserve a little credit too. Fine,
1: here. Uh, you you were about to say the second guy that kind of made this important.
0: And
2: I knew that Borges, I... I, I I, I was, trust
1: you, I was Nathan. thinking
2: about Borges, too. No, you've never
1: heard of Borges. <laughs>
2: <laughs> For who? I, I, I don't know Ooh. anything about Borges except South American and magical realism, and we were going to do them once, then we didn't.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Borges, 40s and 50s, he was writing in the 40s and 50s. He was, so it had these elements of surrealism to it. Surrealism was a movement. It was especially a visual arts movement, but you had it in poetry as well where you tried to twist reality in strange and often perverse. uncanny ways and perverse ways mm-hmm. that were tied to psychoanalysis and dreams and stuff. And so the fam- the most famous example we have is that one guy, what's his name? Dolly. Dolly. Yes. Who I think that's who, that's who that guy plays. He plays Dolly, doesn't he? Adrian Brody. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he does. Yeah. He's got the dorky, the little mustache. And- yeah. Yeah. Um, that's surrealism and it tried to twist reality. And, and so, it, I mean, you can see why it was a precursor to postmodernism. It kind of was a postmodern movement before postmodernism was cool, right? Mm-hmm. Surrealism was, there we go. Surrealism was postmodernism before postmodernism was cool. I love it. It's
0: a mixed t-shirt.
1: But a lot of these surrealist authors, uh, writers and thinkers, they would, they for some reason, they were all kind of located in Latin America. Borges would be heavily influenced by them and he would write his little short stories which the tenets of, of magical realism is it must be in a setting that seems like the real world, right? That's that's essential to it. Mm-hmm. It's not a fantasy world. It's not a science fiction world. It's a, fan, it's, it's a real historical earth setting. And then into this historical earth setting, you have some sort of fantastical element, something supernatural, something magical that happens that's forces you to question that reality but also that fantastical element is just also kind of seen as something that's just a part of this world even and so obviously here is salim sinai's elephant nose and his snot that allows him to connect all to the midnight's children these fantastical elements are supposed to question force you to question reality but then also force you to think in a very it is similar to surrealism in this way Twist reality for you so that it can try and help you maybe see the world in a different light. Right. And so, um, also, it's just because it was, it's a fun feeling. And I think that when, like, when the other famous magical realist writer that you were about to say was Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Mm -hmm. who was writing at the same time in his books, you never really get the sense that he's trying to use his magical realism to, like, he doesn't have like a moral or a, um, political aim for his magical realism He doesn't have the it's just completely like it's kind of like a post story it's completely just for the tone it's for the effect mm -hmm. and it's also what i get out of borges too like when he tells his story about the the labyrinth or the libraries right you know what i'm talking about yeah the yeah it's just it's just creating an effect it's really all it is it's an effect it's 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 an artistic effect borges even eventually gave it up and said
0: that's all it was for yeah. some of those early kinds of That's right. yeah. So It's
1: like an Escher painting. Yeah, exactly. And so for him, that's kind of what it was. And it was just supposed to really toy with your sense of reality, but just for the sake of that. But really, Rushdie kind of takes that magical realism element and makes it an essential part of this story and gets something out of it where it's, I don't know of a magical realist work that I've ever read that is, is as successful as this book, where the magical elements really do add to the story. And they really do feel like they're just a part of the real world, which are kind of the tenets of what a magical realist book tries to do. Yeah, and that's the closest I think that we can come. And I think that, I mean, I think it's pretty fair to say that this is a book of magical realism. And so, and probably I would say, like, I guess because I just said it, probably the pinnacle of it. Mm -hmm. This is the height of magical realism. I
0: certainly like it better than Marquez if he's the other kind of dude. Which Marquez is strange because not all his books are magical realism but So his famous ones are yeah. the, ones, the ones that i know a like me knows
1: yeah yeah i mean there are other things with like latin american literature because of it being latin american politics or is always fraught over there magical realism always has kind of a political edge to it as well and so that fits nicely into this because this does have a political edge he definitely is saying something about the gandhi regime and about the politics of india
2: i have a question yeah to what degree would you connect somebody like Stephen Milhauser to magical realism?
1: I was actually thinking about that. I think Mil- Milhauser is definitely.
2: It's not if, doesn't feel like the same thing, but it is so like so much of his style is just all about effect. And it does go off into.
0: I think that. My instinct, Brandon, would be to say that the magical realists actually cross the line into pure fantasy a little bit more than somebody like Milhauser does, maybe. I mean, Milhauser will do overtly think, supernatural things, though. I think
1: they do, but I think without question, Milhauser is influenced by magical realism. Yeah. I mean, he has to be, because which one did we read? What was it? We the one read Martin Martin Dressler. Martin Dressler. I mean, the whole description of the place he builds- The vast cavernous hotel. Has elements that. of magical realism it. really to does. It. Because, I mean, the tenant. the way I understand magical realism is the real tenant of it is that it's supposed to draw your attention to the underlying strangeness of the world by having a world where the magical elements are pretty much just seen as mundane realities. Right. Right. Does it make sense? And so by these things that was, should seem strange, by the fact that they're not seen as strange, but they're there- it kind of draws your attention to the strangeness of the world. To me, it's like if the dial is set
0: on zero and that's a normal world, and then the dial has to go up to 10 to give you Lord of the Rings, magical realism, the dial's like on a one or a two, it's just, just off kilter enough to throw reality into sharp relief by including these fantasy yeah. elements, but it's and not, it's not full blown. And you'll often fantastical. get fantastical.
1: You'll often get parts where like suddenly you'll go into like another complete plane of reality. And you see that here with, uh, The jungle, which Mm -hmm. is a weird part of this book. And so the magicals element will sometimes come out strongly, but usually it's all wrapped into just the real world. It's supposed to seem like this is just something that happens.
2: Point of comparison, the only obvious point of comparison that I have is Mm Millhauser.
1: Yeah. And I think that's right. So
2: in Rushdie's, the only obvious point of comparison I have for
1: Millhauser. Mm-hmm. And they're similar effects because really what magical realism is going for is it is a tone and it's one of mystery. It wants to emphasize the fact that we know very little about our world, that there's a mysterious element to it. And yet also that it's still just the mundane everyday world anyways. So it has this weird balance that it's always trying to play. And that describes, in my mind, that describes Milhauser. Right. And the effect that I got from him. Maybe the difference
0: between something like uh, Marquez or Rushdie or Milhauser- between Marquez and Rusty on the one hand and Milhouse on the other, is uh, Rushdie almost wants to say the whole world is colorful and crazy and actually these supernatural things fit right in because actually everything's bonkers. And so a ghost showing up is no surprise to anybody because people are just weird and yeah. everything's <clears throat> violent and weird and mm, crazy yeah. and sexual and gross and Colorful and wonderful and phantasmagorical. It's whereas somebody like Milhauser is going to give you one effect, and he's going to allow it in a certain sense to yeah to feel out of place in a way that somebody like Rushdie actually wants it to all be of a piece in a way yeah. that maybe Milhauser doesn't. I don't know. Well, one <laughs> well,
2: in Milhauser, it's like the fantastics intruding on on normalcy. Mm, yeah, then yeah, ordinary, mundane.
0: Yeah, Rushdie wants us to see how crazy and unmundane he's always. Our world is.
2: Yeah, Rushdie. The world's all colorful, all over the place, and right. Everybody's yeah. cr- and, an eccentric, and, and everyone's and, crazy. In Millhauser, everything is black and white, except for and this one place that he wants to draw. It's just stark relief mm-hmm. to that, yeah. or I guess I don't know if that's mixing metaphors. He just like you know. Wherever it is, it, if it's a short story or if it's the Grand Budapest Hotel or whatever that <laughs> thing's Grand, called.
0: Yeah. It's like everybody else is building normal hotels. And Martin Dressler's the guy that delved deep into this psychotic, crazy hotel yeah. dream. But in Rushdie, everybody would be building their own weird hotels. and
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, one quote I found that was pretty fun is this Mexican critic. He said that if you can describe it, it's not magical realism. Yeah. And so the point is that this is one of the most notoriously difficult concepts in ma- in literature to actually pin down and say that this is what the definition is. Right. Because you have so many, it's it's just. It's, it's, it's a catch-all to describe yeah. a kind of feeling. And a tone, a feeling of mystery. Yeah. So like some critics say that magical realism as a tone should then be stretched back to include people who didn't even think of themselves as magical realists like Kafka. Right. Which, I mean, the metamorphosis, Yeah. There's a sense of magical realism to that. So the most convenient way I think of it is that it really was a movement like Surrealism that did start, oh, in in Argentina, Mm -hmm. where we have a good friend from Argentina. Mm -hmm. It's one of the, uh, an actual important literary movement came out of there and that there were some writers who at least were heavily influenced and saw themselves as fitting into that category. Rishti would have known of Borges and Marquez and would have seen that as being a way to tell this story they wanted to tell about this person being linked to the history of his own nation and so if you're going to do a story like that what category of literature do you draw from you draw from magical realism right and that's not to say that Rushdie is a magical realist writer because not all his books are but this is a magical realist book and I think it's because Rushdie in good postmodern fashion can just borrow whatever truth he wants at the moment to Mm -hmm. tell his story and to tell a really good one yeah so yeah that's the context I got. That's the context you got.
0: Well, I got some donor shout outs to do before this episode closes. Guys, if you will please I'm just gonna read off these donor shout outs pretty quickly. Sounds good. If you guys can make some some jungle animal sounds. I will. So that our listeners feel like they're in a jungle. That'd be good. All right, here we go. Robert and Ronda the Lovebirds. The artful Anthony Dodger. <laughs> little Anthony <No>. Cigar Store. <laughs> the mortar Chelsea. <laughs> Jimmy <laughs> Bean <laughs> and <the> Little <laughs> Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley Andrew and Esther the Lover. Yeah. <laughs> the Keith Master David's Mighty Men Trekking bah. John and Jill and <laughs> Little Baby Max <laughs> Jay and Katie <laughs> who are cold and love cheese And also C.S. Lewis and Kilding Tuiac
2: Fairy
0: Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Beth Consul Prime Adam Galactic Princess Emily Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death And Dark Prince Bear And Princess Bug of Death Doom Die. Nathan not me Maya The Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice, Danny the Dude, Mm. DJ Sammy G,
2: Mm. (laughs) Danny and Dana Tiberius, Uh, Eric and Catherine uh, from Yon Window Breaks, (laughs)
0: Professor (laughs) and Lady X, Lavender Screen Dylan Dylan,
1: Lavender Screen Dylan Dylan, Dylan, Lavender's lavender's Blue,
2: blue.
0: Lavender Screen Dylan Dylan, Dylan, I love love you too. No constrictor, Mara Cheap, um, Natalie with a battery cheap, cheap. of kung fu mastery, cheap, 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 the fair yeah. and fragrant maiden Chloe, six-pack Zach with a mean attack, and Clack, Catherine with a neck for laying yeah, quack, down quack, the quack. smack, Anthony who is cold and hates life, Honk. liberty, and the pursuit of cheese,
2: Jiu-Jitsu, Jeffrey, yeah. the Texas Ranger, uh, fly Rachel. together. Rachel. Yeah. Rachel.
0: Leper Tank Thomas, <laughs> of course. No. Lest we forget Leper Tank Thomas. <laughs> All right. No more jungle. We, now we need to name some new donors, and welcome to the, the donor shout-outs family. First of all, this is only Leopard Tank Thomas's second donor shout-out, so hey, thank Leopard you, Tank, Leopard Tank Thomas. Old Leopard Tank
2: Thomas I forgot himself. about Leopard, Leopard Tank, Tank Thomas. Thomas. Yep. Thomas
1: I did Tank. not. Well,
0: yeah. I won't forget you forever. I, no. No. Now, we've got Ellen DeGeneres? No. Well, huh. maybe. No, it's not. I checked. It's not Ellen DeGeneres. You checked. Just uh, to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure. Just now. So, what kind of a shout-out name do you guys want to give Ellen?
2: An awesome one, obviously.
0: All right, yeah. Brandon, name uh-huh. the first word that comes into your mind. One, two, three, go. Tabasco. <laughs> Jake, first word that comes into your mind. One, two, three, go. Pizza. Tabasco. Pizza. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Brandon, name the first awesome word that comes into your mind. One, two, three, go. Cheetah. Oh, good. The, I like it already. Bra- Jake, awesome word. One, two, three, go. Awesome. Ah, uh, cheetah. Awesome cheetah. Let it le- Awesome cheetah. Ellen. Not bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of bad. <laughs> yes, All nice. right, you
0: know what, <laughs> Ellen? I'm sorry. I shouldn't throw to the boys. Only I know how to name you. You will be Ellen the Ninja. There we
2: have
0: this. We already have a ninja. Do we have ninjas? All right. Yeah. How about Midnight Ellen? Midnight Ellen. Midnight Ellen. <laughs> Midnight Ellen. Yeah. Ooh, I like Midnight Ellen. All right. And we've got Congetta. Welcome, Congetta, and thank you for supporting the booking. Welcome, King Kongetta. You think she like that? Oh, I bet you're the first person to suggest that one. Queen Kongetta. Queen Kongetta. There we go. All right, we got Midnight's Ellen and Queen Queen Kongetta. Thanks for supporting us. Booking Today, produced by me, executive produced by Jake, performed by Brandon, and we want to thank you for supporting us. If you want your name on a donor shout-out list, you want to hear some jungle animal sounds going on while I read your name, patreon.com forward slash The Booking is the place for you. Go there, sign up for as little as $10 a month. We'll give you a shout-out, sign up for a little less, we'll give you other cool stuff, sign up for a little more, we'll give you yet more cool stuff booketing.com or no, no i'm sorry patreon.com forward slash the book thing all your booketing support needs will be fulfilled there sign up for hundred dollars a month you can choose a book for us to read within reason hey thanks for listening everybody my name is nathan alverson
2: i love you yes he does